All right, Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, the Lord has just set out the principles of the kingdom as his first discourse in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Then Jesus has uh, demonstrated the credentials of uh, his authority as he has healed the sick, the leopard, the demon possessed in chapter 8 and 9. Um, but even as Jesus did all this, he was rejected and opposed by many. He um, healed and forgave the man of the palsy, and uh, he was accused of blasphemy in chapter 9, verse 3. Um, they were offended at his um, eating with sinners when he called Matthew in Matthew nine eleven. The people laughed him to scorn in the house of uh, Jairus as he went to raise uh, his daughter in 9.24, and they associated his work with the devil in 9.34. It seems that Jesus can't win for losing. Um, the second discourse now deals with the instruction to the 12 disciples as Jesus uh, sends them out to the harvest. This is from uh, the better break. We mentioned that last time as chapter 9, verse 35 would be a better break for the chapter. Uh, the verse and chapter are not inspired. They were uh, added uh, way after. And, and for the most part, the divisions are pretty accurate. Sometimes they, they miss it by a, a, a section. I think this would be better uh, from 935 all the way to 1042. Uh, chapter 10 uh, should begin here. I, I believe it's a better division. Now, the Lord has just uh, um, demonstrated his burden over the few labors of the harvest. So he exhorts the disciples and he prays that they should be praying for the Lord to send out harvest people labors. And, and now who he's going to do is he's going to send them out. Um, so chapter uh, 10 here, verse 1 through 4, you have the um, 12 apostles that are sent down. He says that when uh, he had called his 12 disciples uh, to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of diseases. And so here again, the commission of the 12, uh, those who had, he had taught, those who he had demonstrated all that he was doing in the kingdom of God, now he hands it over to them. He summons them. They have been called, ordained, and chosen by him. Uh, Matthew 10, 1, Mark 3, 14, Luke 6, 13 gives us all those things. As you look at the synopsis, put them side by side. Um, Mark 3, Luke 6, and Acts 1 gives you the different listings of the um, apostles. Now, later on, Matthew will tell them that they're going to sit on 12 thrones, uh, judging the tribes of Israel in the kingdom in chapter 19, verse 28. So God has a, a, a great plan for these 12 um, apostles. Um, Jesus prepared them for their mission. He gave them power. Here again now, unclean spirits, healing the sick, um, all this uh, to heal diseases. This was God's grace as he imparted to them. Again, we're going to see that uh, the names of the 12 are given in verse 2 through 4. Um, he says, now the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, uh, John, the brother, uh, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus, 
Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Now, these um, 12 that are mentioned here, um, disciples, a learner, a pupil, an apostle is one sent down as an ambassador, and they're going out to represent Jesus Christ. Um, everything they do, they're representing Jesus. They're representing the kingdom of God. Um, five of these already have been called um, in, in chapter 4, verse 18 through 22, and chapter 8, 9 through 13. Uh, it will be the first four, the two groups of brothers, and Matthew. Um, the listings, as you compare them through the uh, synoptic gospel, they have similarities and differences. Let me point out some things. Peter's always the first to be mentioned, and Judas is always the last. Judas is scary. Uh, they stand in three groups of fours with the same names, but they are in different orders of time in the groups. If you were with us for our in-depth study of the 12 apostles when we did the character study, we pointed all these things and other things that are very important. Um, they are listed in pairs in Matthew, and they, in Mark, they are sent out in pairs, Mark 6, 7. Uh, again, in verse 2, Peter and Andrew are brothers, James and John, sons of Zebedee, they're also brothers. Uh, Jesus named them sons of thunder because they were hot-tempered. They want to bring down fire to consume the Samaritans in Mark 3, 17. Uh, and... Um, Again, these four had been called already in chapter 4, verse 18 through 22. Philip and Bartholomew. Bartholomew is Nathaniel. Uh, John 1, 46 makes this clear. So remember, some of these guys have two names, surnames, and nicknames. So um, you've got to compare them. Thomas, doubting Thomas, and Matthew, of course, a tax collector. In verse 3, and Matthew, again, has also been called already in chapter 8, 9 through 13. And then you have James, the son of Alphaeus, Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, okay? So again, they give you the other things so you can distinguish them. And then you have Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot, the last pair, uh, who also betrayed him. Uh, Simon the Canaanite doesn't mean that he was a Canaanite or from Canaan. But the word means zealot, the most patriotic and nationalistic group that would even um, lay down their lives at the drop of a hat to oppose any foreign opposition to Israel. Now you have a tax collector who's a Jew, and you have here Simon, the zealot. Only God can put two people like that together <laughs> to not kill each other, okay? <laughs> and the transformation of God through the lives of people. Um, the new Jerusalem will have the walls of the city has 12 foundations we're told and in them the names of the 12 apostles will be there Revelation 21 14 now in verse 5 through 15 you have the sending of the 12 it says uh, we, we dealt with uh, 5 all the way to 23 this morning in death he says, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter the cities of Samaria. So it is limited to Israel alone. The Gentiles, again, are the pagan of all the nations, but the Samaritans were those who were half Jew and half Gentile through the Assyrian captivity in 722. And um, they would bring people of other lands and settle them and other persons like Pasadena and then Pasadena over to 
um, maybe San Francisco, and they would um, divide them in family and uh, patriotism and to discourage them and that it would just settle down and they would be less um, likely to revolt. And so here again, um, um, exclusively to Israel, because the Messiah was Jewish, the Messiah was promised to Israel. So right now, at this time, this mission is solely to the Jew. It doesn't mean that it continues like that. Paul says in Romans 1.16, to the Jew first, then to the Greek, in terms of priority of time. But after um, Pentecost, they started reaching out to the Gentiles. And finally, the first, first early Christians were all Jewish. But then they were persecuted by their own Jewish uh, family and nation. And then ultimately, as it went on and on, more Gentiles came into the church and the Jews became the least in number because they rejected Jesus Christ. And so here in verse um, 6, go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So notice they are lost. They're not more saved. They're not closer to God. They are lost. But they're just the people of God. And so in verse 7... He says, but go rather, uh, I'm sorry, verse 7. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the proclamation that God was uh, now present through the Messiah. And the ultimate goal is to establish the kingdom of God on earth. The second coming will establish that, to set up the millennial kingdom. Those who repent enter the kingdom of God that will be part of the kingdom of heaven. As uh, they move into the millennial kingdom, either as the bride or those who accept Christ during the great tribulation. And they serve the Lord while we reign with the Lord. So there's always that distinction that is made. Um, verse 5 and 6 is unique to Matthew. You don't find it in the other synoptic gospels. Um, now, as they preach the kingdom, the word again preached, we mentioned this morning, is, is Caruso to make a proclamation. And, and people were hired to make this proclamation professionals by kings or state and the message was given to them the authority was delegated to them they were not responsible for people's response just the proclamation the same as to you and i um you don't save anybody i don't save anybody all i have to do is make that proclamation clear god's love his grace and that he can forgive them of their sins and that's the important thing that we have to do and now um here the divine power given to them to heal the sick, the sick, uh, cleanse the lepers, uh, raise the dead, and um, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So once again, each of them received grace by God completely for their own sins, their own lostness. The same thing is to be when we proclaim the gospel. Um, anybody who charges for the gospel is a thief and a robber. Anybody, and uh, again, the church... Um, it didn't take long for the church to be corrupted. If you just read the messages to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, um, before the century had turned, um, the saints already found in five of the seven churches. Um, there's a rebuke to all of them except the suffering church. And uh, it seems that we move away from obeying God and doing things the way God wants, and uh, people move into professionalism and to merchandise the people of God. And that seems to be the nature of man, even within the church. Uh, there is so much uh, uh, that God is not pleased that goes on within the church today. Primarily all the heretical teaching and all the things that are so opposed to what God wants to do. 
and people bringing attention to themselves and drawing disciples to themselves rather than pointing them to Jesus Christ. And there's such a, a, a syncretism of the psychology, the sociology, the philosophies, and all these things and all these behavioral modifications that is brought in under the umbrella of Christianity, even the New Age movement with um, the emergent church and uh, uh, and, and there'll be other things if the Lord tarries. There's always uh, that that goes on. And so, um, verse 9, he says, uh, Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper um, in your money belt, uh, nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics or sandals, nor staffs for workers worthy of his food. And so here again, uh, Jesus is is dealing with preparing them to go. Um, they're, they're to provide for only the minimal things they need. Um, they are going to minister the gospel. They're not to uh, make provision for themselves of great wealth. Or uh, the bag speaks about a uh, second time, uh, suit of clothing, a uh, second pair of shoes, stuff like that. In other words, just minimal. This mission is urgent. It's going to be quick. And uh, so they're to travel as light as possible. And again, Jesus points out there in verse 10 about the, uh, uh, the worthiness of that servant. As they go, that they would be provided when the places they're going to stay is going to see. He's going to give very specific instructions about that as we saw this morning. Um, in, in verse 11... Uh, down to 12, you have the proper gracious added to the apostles are to uh, impart and demonstrate to those that they um, uh, come in contact with. Verse 11 says, Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who is in it worthy and stay there um, till you go out. Then the indication is that those who have an open heart to the gospel, those who will listen, those who might be open to repent. And again, they're to stay. The text indicates that they're not to just, you know, be, that they're to be content whatever is offered to them uh, and not looking for the best place, leaving that place, going to another. Um, it's, it's interesting how the attitude of different people who supposedly are servants of God. Um, sometimes people will call me to do a conference or something and, and they say, well, what do you charge? I said, um, give me an address and a time. That's all. There's no charge. There is nothing. And it just seems that the gospel is so merchandised today in so many ways that it's always, always amazing to me. God's grace as he's given to us um, so freely. Um, verse 12, uh, when you go into that house, um, go into the house household and greeted so blessed uh desire the best for that home uh, give them the benefit of the doubt you don't walk in already uh doubting them or looking for fall but you're hoping the heart is open if the household is worthy let your peace come upon it but if it is not worthy let your peace return to you so depending on the response of the people if they responded in a good manner towards the gospel of the good news then they were to continue to bless them and if they opened their heart then they were to welcome them into the family of God that they now were forgiven and now they were in the family of God and the kingdom of God uh, without any prejudice without any um, second thoughts or anything else um, 
just as they had done so. And then um, if they did not, and the word worthy again we said means of equal weight. If they rejected it, then they were to have their peace returned to them. In other words, not to walk and say, God bless you, like John tells us in this small epistle. Don't bid God bless to those who are not of God. If they reject that gospel, then he's going to have them to reprove them sharply and very clearly that they are under God's judgment. Here in verse um, uh, 14, he says, And whatever... Whoever will um, not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake the dust off your feet. This was a symbolic gesture that was done by the Jew as they um, uh, shook themselves the dust off their clothing when they travel, when they went from Gentile territory over to the Jewish territory so they wouldn't contaminate it. Uh, particularly when they would go up from Jerusalem to the north of Galilee. They would go up two roads, as I said this morning, either the King's Highway, down over on the east side across the Jordan, then cross over again, or via Midas, the way of the sea along the coast. And so here again, it would be indicating that they had rejected the good news from heaven. They had not really welcomed those ambassadors from heaven, and therefore... They were not really pleasing to God. In fact, they were still under the wrath of God. And so, um, this is the most loving thing you can do when someone rejects the gospel is to warn them before you leave. Now, you understand what the Bible says. And your attitude is that of compassion and love, concern for them. And even as they reject it, they're not rejecting you. And you walk away praying for that individual. And that God would... um, uh, send somebody else that their heart would not become hard and be lost. And so here in verse 15, he says, Surely I say to you, um, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So here again, the rejection of the gospel, the, it, it, it's just under God's judgment uh, better for some going because they received the greater light. They were confronted with the gospel. Uh, the law in the Old Testament was a shadow of things to come. Uh, uh, the, the schoolmaster leading us to Christ. This now is the Messiah. He's sending his ambassadors out. And in verse 16 to 23, you have the pronouncement now of the persecution. Uh, Everything has been pretty well up to this point, but now comes some sharp reality. He says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of uh, wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and gentle um, or harmless as doves. And so here now, the um, word behold is to pay attention. It's almost all of a sudden. He's changed gears here from things of instruction to things of warning. Um, the danger uh, is marked through the proverb here. Um, uh, send out the sheep and yet among the wolves, um, those who are concerned with destroying them, um, they're to be wise, prudent, um, sagacious, if you will. Um, the association with a serpent, uh, how clever they are. Uh, now, of course, we know that in the scriptures, um, 
from Genesis, Psalms, and uh, other passages that Paul even tells the Corinthians, the serpent is that one who is deceptive in the things of the spirit, Satan. But here he takes the attribute that is used negatively to use the power to be crafty, to be wise concerning these wills, to not put themselves in danger, but at the same time harmless. He's talking about unmixed, pure, sincere, without fault. That they not retaliate just because somebody wants to hurt them, but they also here are concerned about them. And so it's almost a contradiction, but it isn't. Because Jesus had all the power to destroy people, and he did not. Um, he just gave them up to themselves. He pronounced judgment over them, but his heart was broken. He, he wept over Jerusalem because she rejected him. He didn't laugh. He didn't rejoice, but his heart was broken over that, knowing the judgment that would come upon them. In verse 17 and 18, you have the specific um, persecution. He says, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before uh, governors and kings for my name's sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. So they will be delivered by the Jews to the synagogues. There they would be scourged, even as Jesus was scourged. And then also the Gentile um, kings and the governors because uh, Israel was subject to the rule of Rome. They had to get per permission from Pilate to accuse Jesus and they needed his authority to put him to death because um, the death penalty had been removed from Israel even though they still did that at times because Saul, as you know, put Christians to death, right? They stoned Stephen. Um, and so, um, but, but here again, uh, for his name's sake, they are going to be accused and charged. Not because they're obnoxious, but because they are God's representatives. Now, as I said this morning, we uh, somehow have escaped much persecution as a church in America, but the remainder of the world has always suffered. Even today, there are many who suffer as Christians. Um, um, I don't believe we as Americans have really suffered in any way, although things are changing in the attitude of our, cer certainly in our public school education and universities that are so anti-American and anti-Christian and anti um, our forefathers of uh, the very fact of why and how they established this nation and uh, the uh, Judeo-Christian ethic and law that our Constitution is based on, our court system, everything else, it seems that people just are, are set on just denying and destroying it and corrupting it in every way. Again, this is the spirit of Antichrist. This is, it's been in the world, and ultimately the Antichrist will come and he will manifest himself in this world uh, as the um, ultimate um, power of sin. In verse... Uh, 19 and 20, the need to depend on Jesus uh, in times of persecution uh, rather than depending on oneself is given. Uh, but when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak. 
for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And so the believer, as he's brought before, whether it be the Jewish course, as we see through the book of Acts, that Peter and many were brought before, and God gave them the words to declare and rebuke and, and declare, you know, whether um, we are to obey God or man, and you judge, we will obey God. Even though they were threatened and everything else, they were put in jail, and God sent an angel and delivered them, and they went right back to preaching in the temple. They went looking for them. They weren't there. And the guard comes in and says, hey, the guys you're looking for, they're over here preaching in the temple. They brought them in. And Peter just laid a heavy witness on them. Paul the apostle before um, Agrippa um, laid a heavy witness. Felix, a heavy witness. All of them. Bernice, a heavy witness. And he desired that all of them would be saved like Paul, except for the chains that he was bound. This was the desire of Paul. Uh, again, the, he when he got to Caesar, he appealed to Caesar. Um, uh, the Praetorium Guard knew why he was there and he shared the gospel and many of the Praetorium Guard uh, accepted the Lord and he tells the Philippians very much so. And that um, uh, even though many wanted to add to Paul's hurt and they were preaching to add hurt to Paul and others were being encouraged by Paul's imprisonment and preaching, Paul said, I don't care whether they want to add hurt to me or whether they're just encouraged as long as Christ is preached. And uh, that's... That was the goal of Paul continuously. Uh, we have many examples of, um, of those who were put in difficult situations by God directly. Uh, Joseph, Daniel, uh, Nehemiah. And they trusted the Lord. They depended on the Lord. The Lord gave them the words to say. The Lord was with them. Uh, you have witnessed some of that in your life as God has allowed you to go through some difficult things. Have to be confronted with some difficult people. Difficult circumstances. And as you seek the Lord, he gives you those words. He gives you that wisdom. And uh, he is faithful in all those times. Always, completely. Now, in verse 21. Um, yeah, verse 21 down to 23, you have the persecution will come from family members also in society. Uh, remember that it's the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that directs our life completely. And so, verse 21, he says, Now, brother, will deliver up brother to death, and a father, his child, and children will rise up against parents, and cause them to be put to death. I mean, the most heinous crimes. I mean, parents and children. That which is natural. But look at the, look, look at the principle. Today, women will kill their children in the womb. Either by tearing them apart or by drowning them in salt. Or by partial abortion. The child being born and just turning them around. And then sucking out the brain. I mean, things like that that are unnatural because the world has indoctrinated women in the feminist movement to believe that that is not a human being. That heart starts beating, I believe, 7 to 14 days after conception. Everything is in that baby. 
It takes the nine months to develop all those things. And what comes forth is a human being. But that human being, an embryo, fertilized, is a human being. And yet, that's before it's even come forth from the womb. This is after. This is because of the hatred for Christ and the person who has chosen Christ. And sometimes families are divided severely. There is a, a real animosity and hatred. Uh, certainly the Jewish community demonstrated that in the early church. They would have funerals for their Jewish sons and daughters who accepted Christ. They do that today, the Orthodox. There are also people who are not Jewish and they hear about their son or daughter coming to Christ and, 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 and they rather see them the way they were. They, they just can't understand. Why would you want to waste your life? Why would you want to live for uh, this, quote, quote, Messiah? You're, you're, you're destroying. You're wasting it. And it's amazing just um, the hatred, the animosity that comes, and, and especially if, from religious people. People who are religious, they get upset, real upset. And so, um, notice in 22, you'll be hated um, by all for my name's sake, but he endures to the end will be saved. And so, Jesus says that in many different contexts, uh, such as the second coming, but here uh, it is as he sends them out, and certainly it applies to the time for the rest of his ministry and even after the resurrection. Um, uh, and the endurance, again, is trusting Christ, not having confidence in ourselves. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we shall be saved, the Bible says. The three aspects are declared to us. Now, in verse 22, I mean, verse 23, um, it says, And when they persecute you in this city, flee to another, for assuredly I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities um, of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now, keep in mind, stay, in, stay on trail, be a good spiritual hound dog. This is the mission of the twelve. He's just given them instructions. Now he makes his declaration. And what Jesus is doing here is that he gives them the ultimate out in persecution. In other words, if you're going to be persecuted, they're going to kill you. You don't have to stand there. If you can flee, you flee. Okay, Paul did it. He was escorted from uh, uh, Thessalonica to Berea and over to Corinth. Um, you have... David, who fled from the persecution of Saul. Uh, you have Elisha, who, who fled from Jezebel. Um, and so, he says, flee to another city. And um, when he says that he would meet them or catch up with them as they've gone through the cities of Israel, he's talking about them. That's the context um, many commentators say that it's speaking about the second coming, speaking about the resurrection after the resurrection, or the judgment in 70 A.D., or even the coming of the Holy Spirit. All those four things are foreign to the text. Now, 
He does use the same words in Matthew 24, 13 and Mark 13, 13. But that context is tribulation, great tribulation, just before the second coming. If you study the synoptic gospel, Jesus said many things, the exact words, but the context makes all the difference on what it indicates. You may say the same thing to your son and then use the same phrase to the mailman, but I guarantee you that you are meaning two different things. Okay? And so the context is always very important. I believe that the first verse of chapter 11 is to be the last verse of chapter 10, and it confirms what this verse says. Look at verse 1 of 11. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. So as he sent them out, they went before him, he came behind them, and then he caught up with them. That's all it is saying, okay? So once again, Scripture interprets Scripture, not our speculation, not our subjective reasoning, but the Scriptures. Very, very important. Now from 24 to 33, you have the principles of, for effectiveness for um, uh, a persecuted disciple. 24 and 25, the disciple of Jesus will be treated like Jesus. Keep this in mind. 24 says, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house, Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household. So here's a perfect parallel of the disciples and Jesus. Um, disciples are not greater than the teacher. The teacher is Jesus. They're not greater than their master. Very simple. They're always learning at the feet of Jesus. They're disciples. They are servants, doulos, by choice for life. And they are genuine representatives of their master. And therefore, they will be treated just like their master if not worse than their master. Paul the Apostle called himself a servant, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. He didn't think himself uh, deserving to be called uh, an apostle. He says he was the chief of sinners. He says all of those accolades that he uh, acquired in the book of Philippians, he lists them there. He says they're a bunch of, a pile of manure. Um, they don't add anything. They don't merit me anything to enter heaven. Those are just uh, human achievements that people are impressed with, but they cannot justify you and they cannot forgive you. Amazing what Paul the Apostle um, in his attitude towards uh, the gospel and understanding it completely um, so he would not corrupt it. And he could easily have done that because he was such an incredible religious man. Zealous. In verse um, 26, through 31, you have the proper fear of a disciple. He says, therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, 
speak in the light, and what you hear in the ear, preach in the housetop. And so a disciple should not fear man who persecutes a believer, for God will reveal all that is hidden one day. He's the one that understands everything. The disciple is to be faithful and courageous, speaking forth God's word and exposing sin. Being that ambassador, being that representative, uh, as God directs him, darkness exposes the light. The gospel is the light. You don't have to accuse. You don't have to point fingers. When people ask you, you just share the gospel. You share what the gospel is all about, the good news that we are dead in trespasses and sins, the good news that we are enemies of God, the good news that we are the wrath of God. And the great news is that God wants to remove all of that by his grace, by forgiving us. And he does it by his grace through faith, no one deserving it. Uh, there could not be a greater message than that. And so this is what um, the enemy, this is what the world doesn't want to hear because they are in darkness. They love darkness rather than light. You and I used to be there. We were no different. So when we minister to others, we can empathize because we used to be there. We understand being lost. We understand the pain, um, the deception, the corruption of sin and what it does to you. And we understand the grace of God as affects us and how he can turn us around and how he can do a great work in us. And that's really um, something that uh, no person can take any credit for at all. And so in verse um, 28, he says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell, Gehenna. So, if you're going to fear someone, Jesus is saying here, make sure that it's the right person. The one that has power, not, over, not just over your body, but the real you is spirit. This body is just a shell. This body is just like a piece of clothes that you put on. One day you're going to take it off just like you take your shirt off tonight, your pants off tonight, your dress off tonight. This body will grow old. I know some of you young people can't even imagine having to wear glasses or uh, not being able to do a chin-up or a push-up. But just, just be patient. It'll happen. Gravity will take hold of all of us. Uh, and one day, um, you will just put this body off. It will go back to the ground. You'll be instantly present before the Lord because the real you is spirit. And God will give you a glorified body at the resurrection. It'll be exactly like the one Jesus has. It's going to be interesting because when Jesus was here, he could get from one place to another instantly. He could just walk through walls and many different things. Yet he ate. And when he ate, the fish didn't fall to the ground, you know. Um, so it, it, it looks the same, but it isn't the same. And it has some nifty little uh, abilities that um, I'm looking forward to experience here. And so if we're going to fear someone, fear the one who has power over your body and your soul to destroy both of them in Gehenna. Gehenna is the final abode 
of the one who has rejected the gospel. The whole crux of chapter 10 is going out in the love of God to share the good news of God to see people be transformed and saved. And those who do not accept the gospel, those who reject the gospel, if they die, instantly they go to hell What's either the Old Testament um, Hades or uh, Sheol or Hades in the Greek. Uh, Jesus spoke about it in Luke 16. It used to be a twofold compartment prior to the resurrection of Jesus. On one side, those who died in faith. The other side, those who died apart from faith. A gulf between them. They could not go to that side or the others to the other side. And uh, the rich man and Lazarus there, he asked that he might dip his finger in water to cool his tongue. Uh, they are, they're in torments. People can't handle that. Listen to me. When Jesus shared Luke 16, he wasn't trying to scare the hell out of anybody. Or scare you to not go to hell. He was sharing that because he doesn't want anybody to go to hell. Because the minute you die without Jesus, you will be separated from God forever. Ultimately, at the white throne judgment, God will judge every person and cast them into Gehenna, the lake of fire that was created for Satan and his angel of Matthew 25, 41. Forever and ever. And so, here again, Fear the one who has power and authority over the real you, your spirit. You will live eternally, either in heaven or in Gehenna. Verse 29 says, Are not two sparrows sold for a, cop a copper coin? And not one of them fall to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all Numbered. So in other words, God is aware of everything that goes on. And God is just. And God takes care of his creation. And God deals with his creation, whether it be the animal kingdom or whether it be the human kingdom. But nothing escapes him. And God does everything justly. There is nothing that he can do that is unjust. Every decision he makes is absolutely perfect. No one's ever going to say to God, no, no, I, I think you misjudged him. I, I think he, he doesn't deserve that. Everybody will be quiet in that day. Absolutely quiet. And so he illustrates here uh, that a disciple should be aware that God is in control and we're to entrust ourselves to him, knowing that he knows everything. We're to commit to him as a faithful creator in our sufferings as First Peter uh, 419 tells us and so uh, verse um, 31 conclusion therefore whoever um, confesses me before men him I will also confess before my father who is in heaven but whoever denies me before men him I will also deny before my father who is in heaven um, you know you really have to strain at a gnat and swallow a camel to mess this scripture up. It's pretty straightforward. 
that whoever doesn't confess, say the same thing, agree with God about who Jesus is and what God says about a sinner, then Jesus rejects them also. That confession is here and now before you die. Many times people say, well, you know, he knew about God, this and that. If I don't see evidence that you are living like a Christian while you're living, why would I give anybody hope that you're a Christian once you've died? People usually die the way they live. There are some death-beth experiences, I believe, but I don't believe they're the rule. You usually die the way you live. If your heart is so hard during your life when you have all this evidence, I doubt if your heart is going to be open as the norm for those who are there. And so it's important that you have a limited time. If you're hearing tonight, you don't know Jesus Christ, that you call upon his name. Verse 32 to 33, you have the um, acid test for salvation here. He says, therefore, whoever confesses me, that's what it is. That's the acid test. Not mere profession, abiding in Christ, being transformed, living differently. And then in 34 here to 39, the gospel of Christ brings division. Now he kind of goes back to it a little differently. He says, do not think that I came to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. They were expecting the Messiah that was going to be conquering, to knock off Rome, set up the kingdom. But first he was going to come to be judged for the sins of the world. And he would divide humanity, those for Christ and those against Christ. Those who are in the family of God and those who are in the family of the devil. There's only two families. Your race is not going to matter. Your gender is not going to matter. Your wealth is not going to matter. Your education is not going to matter. Only your decision for Christ before you die. And so the division, no peace but a sword. Why? Because God knows that we must first be convinced of our corruptness and to come to Christ if we're going to be any good to our family members or others. We have to have our eyes open, our lives transformed. In verse 35 it says, For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. If you first read that in some people who don't know Jesus Christ and they try to read the Bible without being born again, they're going to conclude that Jesus wants you to hate and betray your parents. But that's not what it's saying. What it's saying here is that as you make a decision for Christ, Sometimes if you're a young person, single, your parents are not going to understand why you would want to. We've already touched on that. 
or that your parents would become Christians and you're the single person. You say, what's with my parents, man? They, they smoked the big one. They've lost it. Now in their old age, they're going to be Christians. You know, I've seen how corrupt they are. And now they're going to try to convince me that they're Holy Joe? Because you're looking at through secular eyes, through dead eyes and a dead brain and a hard heart. And so that division comes. Those who are in light, those who are in darkness, those who are alive, those who are dead. Very, very important. Then we become good to those, but those who choose Christ will have enemies in their own household. Very, very clear. Look at verse 37 to 39, the costly life of a disciple of Jesus. He says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, he wants you to love him first. And in loving him first, he will teach you what true love is. So when you love your father, your mother, your son, your daughter, or anybody else, it is in God's agape love, not your conditional, fickle, selfish love. When you love someone like that, now trusting Christ, you will be thinking of them, not you. You will be thinking of what's good for them, not you. You will not be working them, manipulating them. That's the work of God in your heart and in mind. It doesn't come of ourself. It's the grace of God as we yield to the Spirit of God, as he has already mentioned before. As he says here, verse 38, And he who does not take up his cross and fall after me, is not worthy of me. He who finds a life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Denying yourself, losing sight of yourself, picking up your cross, a symbol of death. As you accept Jesus Christ, you are saying, I cease to live. Christ must live through me, the hope of glory. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. The life that I live is by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Looking to him daily, keeping our accounts short. And as he says here, uh, that you follow him daily, the other gospels say. And if that doesn't happen, then you're not worthy, you're not of equal weight. He says, you're lost. You need to repent. And if you don't agree with them, then you're not of equal weight. You're actually a lightweight. You hold no truth. You hold deception. He gives you the truth. When you agree, the balance is equal out. And he can work in your life. And so, in 38, the foolish decision of not denying self, picking up that cross and attempting to find your life through philosophy, psychology, your own endeavors, whatever it may be, pleasure, and you will end up losing your life. Um, but if you lose your life for his name's sake, you will find it. 
And it's almost a paradox, but as you walk with God, you understand that. You've experienced it. You've seen in the life of people who have just, God has done an incredible work. Um, some incredible works that God does is in young people who come to Christ and they remain faithful and they stay chaste and they follow the Lord and they serve the Lord. What an incredible miracle. Others will accept Christ when they're teens or maybe when they're adults or when they're real old. What an incredible miracle. The majority of decisions are made by young kids, teenagers. The older you get, the more difficult it is to yield to the Lord and to repent. And so in verse 40, down to 42, you have the reward to those who receive a servant and a messenger of Christ. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. So uh, those who accept the gospel open their heart to Jesus and the Father. Jesus sends you and Jesus sends the Father. They're hooked together. Verse 41, he uh, who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man reward. So he uses these different categories of individuals, but they're all messengers of Christ regarding the gospel. And um, even as um, you remember, um, John the Baptist is called a prophet. Um, uh, Jesus himself is the prophet of all prophets, Deuteronomy 18, 18, and 19. Um, Elisha uh, was sent to the widow Seraphath, and she cared for him, giving him the little oil and bread she had, and then he blessed her with the oil uh, miraculously. Uh, so in other words, God sees all that you and anybody else does, and he will be just in reward. Um, he is... Uh, again, not needing of any information from any of us. He doesn't need any help. Um, our, all our works will be tried by fire, First Corinthians 3, uh, 12 on down to 15. And they will be put in the fire. It will be silver, gold, or precious stone, wood, hay, or stubble. And the judgment is in the next chapter, chapter 4, verse 5 of 1 Corinthians. It is the motive of the heart. God is not impressed with what I do. God is not impressed with how much I do. God is impressed with why and how I do what I do. Is the motive of what I do love for God and love for you. Then I'll have some reward. But if not, it'll be crispy critter. But that's reward for the believer. That doesn't have to do with salvation. Okay? They're going to be Christians. They're going to have Zippo reward. They'll be saved as by fire. But everything they did was for them. And so God on that day will be very, very faithful. And so, the prophet, the righteous man, verse 42 says, and whoever gives one of these little ones, the little ones are all the people he has um, categorized in the different uh, titles, 
uh, a cup of cold water in the name of a disciple, assuredly, I say to you that he shall by no means lose his reward. Assuredly, every section that closes, 15, 23, 42, verily, in other words, pay attention. What I'm going to say is authoritative, reliable, and very important. Jesus is speaking. He will not miss anything. Once again, verse 1 should be the last verse of chapter 10. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished um, commanding his disciples, his 12 disciples, that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. And that gives the explanation of what he said back in the earlier verse that he would come behind them. And so the importance of preaching the gospel, taking the gospel to those who are lost. By who? By those who were once lost and now they're saved by the grace of God. You and I. This is the very simple way that God has chosen to proclaim his good news from heaven. Through earthly, frail, sinful vessels that have repented by the grace of God. Father, we thank you, we worship you, we pray that you deal with our hearts, we thank you for tonight. And Lord, I pray for every person here, for those listening over the radio, for the internet, that you would speak to them. If you're out there and you're praying right now, or you're listening, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, God has allowed you to listen, to repent of your sins. If you don't know Jesus, a simple prayer of repentance, right wherever you're at in the world, or here, or the internet. This is your prayer to the Lord. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.